what is the chief end of man in other words what is the real purpose the highest purpose for mankind here on this earth anybody know the answer what is it that's it that's why we are created think with me for just a moment is that really true Psalm 86 among the gods there is none like unto thee O Lord neither are there any works like unto thy works in other words he is unique all nations not just some of the nations Psalm 86 verse 9 all the nations whom you've made anywhere on the face of the globe no matter how small the ethnic group might be no matter how it might seem they may seem insignificant to the rest of us because of the size of their people all the nations whom you have made shall come and worship before thee and glorify what thy name what is that when you come before God and you glorify him and you raise up his name what are you doing worship. you're worshiping you're glorifying God why he says in verse 10 for thou art great and you do wondrous things you are God alone the exclusivity of God mentioned there turn over with me for just a moment to Revelation in chapter 4 why do we exist again why am I here Revelation chapter 4 the four and twenty elders have fallen down before the throne of God last verse you are worthy O Lord to receive glory and honor and power when you attribute to God glory and honor and power what are you doing you're worshiping God why is he worthy to be worshiped why do you do that last half of the verse for you have created all things and the answer to the question why am I here on this earth why is anybody here on this earth for the pleasure they are and were created we are created for the pleasure of God primarily in the worship of God again this semester we had the worship class going on Dr. Andrew teaching online in these special meetings but the chapel services this semester are going to be focused around worship and primarily out of the second London confession if you go to most Baptist confessions of faith and you try to find worship there'll be about probably a, maybe one whole good paragraph maybe maybe not that much usually not that much but older Baptists history put a lot more thought into it in London Baptist Confession there are let me count real quick there are seven eight nine excuse me eight paragraphs so every week almost every week we're going to take one of those little paragraphs and look at it and expound on this idea of worship to help build around those special lectures in not too many weeks from now so there on your handout today you have of religious worship and the Sabbath day chapter 22 of the London Confession as you study through these documents almost every one of them has a well not almost they all have a lead paragraph an introductory paragraph that's a big summary and then the paragraphs that follow the shorter ones 
take one aspect usually of that bigger paragraph and expound on that. So we're going to look at the overview today. I'll read through this. You read along with me and then we'll go back and look at the two main sections of this lead paragraph. The light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all. He's just, good, and does good to all. Is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, and called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and all the might. Now, when you read that last phrase or hear the last phrase, serve him with all the heart and soul and with all the might. What does that harken back to in your mind? The greatest commandment. And what you'll find here is that in these doctrinal statements, each one of these is built around Scripture and it's not Scripture directly, it's allusions to Scripture. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations, see that blank in your paper? Imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. So if we're built, created to worship and glorify God, how do I know that there is a God? How do I know that I need to worship Him? What draws me to that? Is there anywhere, any place in the world where people have no exposure to God? There's not any anywhere. Is there any people anywhere that haven't suppressed that knowledge? <laughs> no, we all have. No matter what ethnic group it is, every group has suppressed that knowledge they have. Where does that knowledge come from? How do we know that he's there? Like one of these little questions. How do we know that he's there? Creation, Psalm 19, we read a little bit earlier, says that the heavens declare the glory of God. Now does that mean that we look up into the sky and there's a billboard up there revealing in neon lights God's nature? What do we have? We have the changing of the seasons. We have the different weather that comes and goes. We have the manifestations of creation how the, the weather cycles and seasons and things change. When you see a massive thunderstorm last uh, well yesterday and day before Saturday and Sunday was out in San Angelo Texas at our, one of our churches out there and really this church is way out about 40 miles from San Angelo and how many have been to West Texas lately? What, what do you have as far as a opinion or vision or imagination about West Texas? Desert kind of an area flat and you can see forever as opposed to here big thunderstorm comes up you're not up on top of a high hill you really don't see what's coming but there you can see these thunderstorms 
40 and 50 and 100 miles away. The dark clouds and the flashing of lightning that goes across, all the way across the horizon. There is no mistaking what's going on. And you see the absolute power of God. You don't just see it, you hear it. It is inescapable. The heavens declare the glory of God. It shows His handiwork. It shows how refined and how imaginative, how powerful that God is. We see things that we cannot ever even imagine to do. One of the main things that nature tells us about God, we can look over at Romans in chapter 1 for just a minute. Romans chapter 1 verse 20. When I see these things, even if I don't have a Bible, when I see nature perform like that, you see a great river, you see the oceans receding and coming back, you experience a, an earthquake. How many of you have ever been even in a small earthquake? It's a scary thing. It's a, you say, man, I, I don't know why, I can't control this. It's beyond me. You see those things of nature. What did Paul say about this? What it shows us. It says verse 19, Because that which may be known of God is manifest to them. For God has showed it to them. In nature. In his works of providence. And primarily what do those things tell us? For the invisible things of him. God's invisible character. The things we don't immediately see just from observing nature. What are they telling us about God? From the creation of the world are clearly seen. So invisible things are clearly seen. That doesn't seem to make much sense to us, does it? But it says when you see those visible things, the invisible character of God is made clear. Being understood by the things that are made two primary things that we see or understand about God his eternal power and Godhead most translations today will say divinity so what do we see when we see these things in nature that are beyond anybody's abilities if we couldn't see them personally, we can't, it's hard to even imagine what's going on. But behind that, what do we see? We know even the pagan man somehow understands that behind those things, there is a being that is powerful, more powerful than I can ever even start to imagine. He is eternal. It was there before I was here. The eternal power of God. What are they, or one or two of the main excuses people try to give us about creation? Alternative ideas about creation. The Big Bang Theory. But what they forget to explain about the Big Bang Theory is what was there to bang to start with. All this dust and all these particles exploded. Well, where did all the dust and the particles come from? That's your answer. 
What about evolution? What's behind that? Well, something doesn't come from nothing. How did it evolve if there wasn't anything there to start with? So these things of creation, the power of God in nature, we see the eternal power of God, the beginning, the first cause, and that He is inexplicably powerful and able to do things. Then what else? It says, we see the Godhead. Divinity. In other words, we see that somehow, not just only was there a power, and it's eternal, it's different than I am. I am not God, you're not God. And that's what we see in nature. That's what it's telling us here in this first part of this paragraph. Paragraph 1. The light of nature goes in that gap. The light of nature shows there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all. Well, you know, last year, this pack, we're kind of going through it right now, I really didn't like COVID. I didn't like being in the hospital for a week, taking tons of steroids and all other kinds of medications. I didn't like that, but I had absolutely no power to stop it. How many of us today are enjoying paying nearly $4 a gallon for gasoline? You don't like that? Why don't you do something about it? Why don't you go change it? lots of things around us we cannot change. You have a loved one, a near neighbor, a near relative perhaps, and their life is in ruin. And you know that you know the gospel and you tried to share things about Christ with them and nothing happens. Don't you wish you could change their heart? Open their mind? We can't do that. The light of nature and circumstances that we see all around God's providence tell us that He has lordship and sovereignty over all. goes on to list some of His characteristics. He is just. How do I know God's just? The Word tells me so. But way down deep inside in my heart, in my personality, do you have a sense of right and wrong? Have you ever met anybody that didn't have a sense of right and wrong? Even pagans, even people that tend to that way, way down deep inside, there's the old folklore. What goes around, what comes around. Everybody has this idea of justice because it's implanted in us in our nature from God. He's good. Does anybody really overall appreciate or want evil all around them all the time. No. Down deep inside, human nature wants good. We get that from God. And He's to be praised. Look at these last phrases. Therefore is to be feared. He is to be loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served. He is to be feared. Are you afraid of God? Hmm. 
You need to be afraid of God. God is good in all these things, but if you go the wrong direction, you rebel against God, become his enemy. If you're a friend of the world, you are the what? Enemy of God that can rain fire and brimstone and lightning bolts out of heaven. If you're not going to be the friend of God, you need to be deathly afraid of God. At the same time, it's not just that kind of fear. It's also the idea of reverencing Him, seeing yourself as below God, and owing Him allegiance. Now, we see He's good and He's just, runs nature, controls nature. He's to be served, called upon. If I'm going to praise God, if I'm going to call on Him, if I'm going to trust in Him, and I'm going to serve Him, what do you, all those words combined, what do they mean? I'm going to worship Him. Because of who He is and what I see in nature, I know that there's a God that I ought to worship in some, by some means or some fashion. Now again though, when we see all those things, are they enough? When I see a huge flock of Canadian geese going south for the winter, and I see them going north in the summer, I say, my goodness, I see God at work in those creatures, and I see there's a formation that spells out Jesus as they went across. <laughs> That's not there. It doesn't tell us how we're to be saved, how specifically we love Him or worship Him. That's the second paragraph of that chapter, excuse not second paragraph, second half of that paragraph telling me not just how I know God's there, but how do I worship Him? But, we have nature, but the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself. Why does God have to institute worship Himself? Where did God first reveal Himself for worship? Creation. In creation, first two people, Adam and Eve. And then what did they do? They fell. They questioned the God that they were in fellowship with. And then as they were there in their fallen nature, their hearts and minds corrupted, their bodies corrupted, did they wake up one day and say, well, you know, my body and my mind and my heart are so corrupt, I think I need to repent. I need to go search out God, find Him. Is that what happened? God initiated it. They were darkened in their heart and mind. They could not, they would not see God naturally. They started running away from Him. They hid themselves, but God initiated contact, you might say, with mankind. And the only way we can know God, the only way that we know how to serve or worship Him, is that God institutes, opens that way of communication. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself and is so limited by His own revealed will. People don't like that. I was talking last week to some of the faculty here, some of the students, I think. I don't know who all was engaged. I don't remember who all was there in the presence. But 
I mentioned, we talked about people really, really getting mad at you in church, dealing with religious matters, doctrinal matters, and you just see people just get enraged. Supposedly Christian people. Now I mentioned the two things that I've seen in my lifetime that cause that more frequently than anything else. First one is when you tell them and teach them that they are utterly and totally depraved. That without Christ they are the enemies of God. They are not seeking God. And they're not going to talk themselves into being saved or becoming part of the kingdom of God because they hate God. Because their mind is the enemy of God and their heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and they are unable to come to Christ on their own. That will absolutely enrage a lost person. <laughs> the second thing that I've seen absolutely enrage people, particularly people that are artistically inclined. A lot of them hold the false office in church of worship pastor or worship leader. The pastor and the elder are the worship leaders. There's not this separate office out there. And you tell that person, your imagination is no good. You know why that enrages them? Because an artful person has a lot of imagination. That's good. But no matter how refined their sense of music or their taste is, or no matter how well informed they are in modern culture, there's nothing that comes out of their heart that is capable of pleasing God. If it goes beyond the scriptures. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. And limited to his own revealed will. Where do we find his revealed will? In the scriptures. Why are we confined to that? Is there any further revelation after the completion of the canon? After the death of the apostle and the apostolic delegates and those that worked and lived with them? There's no further revelation. He may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men. You know, I think it'd be really, really wonderful. I had this idea one time that I don't know where it came from. The worship in church on Sunday morning would really be nice if we had some golden censers. <laughs> and I put some nice smelling incense in there and set it on fire and walk around with it. I think that would enhance things. That, that's a good idea. I think it'd be a good idea if you know, I watched, I enjoy watching television and the uh, public broadcasting things with all the classical arts and what have you. And I really enjoy ballet dancing. Very artful. So I think it's a good idea in my imagination. I think that'd be good in church too. So we have ballet, choreographed dancing in church. He's not worshipped according to the imaginations of men nor the suggestions of Satan. In the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, are there any examples 
of people having a hard time when they decided to go out and worship God on their own. By their own imaginations. Over and over and over again. Stick with what I tell you, my instructions. And then it says, nor under the suggestions of Satan. Do you know anybody? Do you ever read about anybody that had a suggestion from Satan about how to worship God? Who was that? I remember Jesus one time. He ran into Satan, didn't he? Satan ran into him, be better, I think. He had some ideas how Jesus could serve God, didn't he? We don't need the suggestions of Satan. Or under any visible representations. Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodox work, work, excuse me, religion, all those kind of things, that's an exact or a distinct breaking of the second commandment. Visible representation. Why are visible representations wrong? Why isn't even Michelangelo and the famous painting on the walls somewhere in Rome of the two hands touching? Why isn't that good? Anything that we come up with in our mind and our imagination to make or represent God cannot in any way fully comprehend God. He's beyond human imagination. He's beyond our power. And anything we make takes and say that is God. That's what God looks like. Anything we do does what? Takes down or diminishes the glory of God. Every single time. You know why usually those things take away from the glory of God? We make them in our image. You see the, those old uh, Greek and Roman uh, figures of mythology. They're false gods. Usually, what does God look like? The big guy. He's all muscled up. Extraordinarily handsome and powerful. The man that made that image, what does he say? That's my idea what I ought to look like. So I'm trying to change God in my own image. And ultimately when you worship an idol, a figure of any kind, really you're worshiping yourself. God says, you cannot, my glory is so great, you cannot represent me in any kind of art, anything fashioned like that. And then here, the la very last phrase is the one, you remember I told you about run across people, so-called worship leaders, and you really want to see them incensed, you want to give one of them a stroke, you want to see him get rid of faith, blood vessels pop out in his neck. <laughs> He's got all these things he wants to do in church, you tell him, you can't do any of that. That's all wrong. The only way you can worship God has to be what? Prescribed where? in the Holy Scriptures. Now that will set them on fire. 
But that's a good thing to do. They need to hear it. There's two versions or two different ways of looking at the scriptures and the things about worship. It says here, we don't do anything not prescribed in the scriptures. When you see the word prescribed, what comes to mind in a daily life? You go to the doctor and you write your prescription. And what does that prescription say? What to take? When to take it, how long to take it, and how many of them to take at one time. He's writing it all out, giving you the directions of what to do. God has given us directions on what we do in worship. And I'm going to leave part the rest of this out here to those things that comes up in another paragraph. You want to come back for a later version, second edition. But at the same time, what it's also saying is, what says you don't do that, you don't use your imagination, you don't work according to the suggestions of Satan or any of those other things, visible representations. Most of the time we think about not prescriptions to worship, we limit it to proscriptions. What's the difference between prescription and proscription? Sound alike, no. Think of the idea of prohibit. God has prohibited things. We know, well, we can't have idols. That's why we don't go to the Catholic Church. And that's why we uh, uh, do some other things. Those things are prohibited. We don't get drunk in church. All that kind of stuff. <laughs> prohibited. But it says, you don't do anything that is not just the things prohibited. You don't do anything that he didn't say to do. That's called the regulative principle of worship. That he is beyond our control, he's beyond our power, he's different than we are, he has eternal power, he's divine. So he can give us instructions. And we don't go against those instructions. Again, artful, very imaginative people, they will say, well, that is too restrictive. There's all these other things we could do. All these other things I see all these other churches doing. That's just too restrictive, too narrow. And really, what it is, is absolute freedom just to do what God tells us to do. And not have our consciences bound by current culture or some weak person's imagination and their flesh. I don't come to church every week with some new innovation that I can put off on everybody else. God has prohibited, said, don't do these things, but then he said, do these things. And I'm free to worship God without the constraints on my conscience from some other man. The light of nature shows there's a God as lordship and sovereignty overall. He's to be feared and worshipped.